Welcome to the Ark Stories Podcast. Ark Stories are true, personal, and told in person at Ark Stories events by the people who live them. Our podcast brings recordings of those stories straight to you for your listening enjoyment. I'm your host, story coach, Chris Kinsley. We're in the thick of summer right now, and for a lot of us, that means a lot of travel. So many people spend the summer taking trips of all kinds, vacations, destination weddings, trips to visit family. Sometimes, though, our travels don't go quite as planned. So in honor of these summer adventures, we're bringing you two stories today of tragic travel. Okay, it might be a bit much to describe these as actual tragedies, but suffice it to say that today's storytellers never quite expected what they encountered on their travels. Our first one is from an event we hosted last year where our theme was Down on Your Luck, stories for Friday the 13th. Here's storyteller Herbie Newell. So my story is about one of the most unfortunate international travel adventures that I've ever had. But it really all centers around two people, Dave, Daryl, and an ingrown hair. And so I work for Lifeline Children's Services, and we're a nonprofit. Anyhow, we're always looking for ways to cut costs. And so one of the ways that we cut costs is when we travel internationally, we figure if you're going to take a plane to the other side you know, of the world, go ahead and try to hit as many countries as you possibly can. And so on this particular trip, we were going to Africa, and we were going to go to Ethiopia because we had some things we needed to do in Ethiopia. And we said, you know, while you're in Ethiopia, why not go to Uganda? You know, it's probably not that much more expensive. And it really wasn't. So we decided to go to Ethiopia and Uganda. And so we are on this really exciting adventure. And we figure out right before we leave that the prime minister of Ethiopia is missing. Like, they don't know where he is. He's been gone for three months. It's kind of was an international mystery that was going on. It was kind of scary. And then the day before we leave, the Pope of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church dies. So, you know, if you're superstitious, which I'm not, you would probably say this is not a great time to go to Ethiopia. But we went anyway because we had, you know, we're trying to save money on tickets. So we go over to Ethiopia well, somewhere in Amsterdam, because you can't just go from Birmingham to Ethiopia without stopping. Um, we were in, in Amsterdam, and we we're in a lobby, and we figure out that the prime minister of Ethiopia had been found, and he was dead. Um, and they don't know why he died. But we didn't think anything about it, and we just went on to Ethiopia. So we get to Ethiopia, and, and this is really when the weird stuff started happening. The, the airport was just absolutely vacant when we get, get there, except for one of the people that would become one of my good friends, these soldiers with shotguns. And so we saw them. We didn't think anything of it. We, we go on to our car, and, and the guy that was meeting us there, he said, did you hear that our prime minister is dead? And we said, yeah, we think we heard something about that. They said, you need to get into the van right now. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, they think an American killed him. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's us, right? So we got... Um, we, we got into this, this, this van, and we're hiding out, and, you know, we're kind of adventurous people, so it, it, it was kind of cool, and we were there for about three and a half hours waiting for his body to come and this morning to happen, and finally, somewhere on the radio, they decided that American Hatton killed him. He'd actually died of cancer, so we emerged from the van, and we got to be a part of the dirge and everything, and it was kind of neat, so, 
You know, all this wailing is going on now in Ethiopia because when your pope and your prime minister die within just a short amount of time, you're kind of sad. So all this was going on. Well, then on the third day of our trip, and this is where the really fun start part started happening, we realized that Dave had an ingrown hair on his left hand. And he showed it to me, and he said, this is a weird-looking ingrown hair. And I said, yeah, it is. And my wife can tell you, I'm not the most merciful person. And so I just said, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an ingrown hair. And he says, well, you think there's anything I need to do about it? I was like, no, nah, it'll pass. Uh, so we went on, and, and we're, we're having fun on our trip, and we're ending our part in Ethiopia, getting ready to go to Uganda. And we go, and we check in for this part in Uganda. And Dave's starting to stress a little bit about it, this ingrown hair. And he goes, has it gotten bigger? And I'm like, yeah, it hasn't gotten bigger, dude. It's just an ingrown hair. Get over it. And he's just all kind of paranoid. and doesn't really get paranoid. So I'm getting a little paranoid, but not that paranoid. And I said, it's fine. So we go and we check in for our trip to Uganda. We get to get this great midnight trip on a prop plane from Ethiopia to Uganda that I was extremely excited about. Um, and we check in. We're waiting for our plane and for us to get called. And all of a sudden, I hear my name over the loudspeaker, and it's like, Mr. Newell, please come to the desk. And I'm thinking, who knows me in Ethiopia? <laughs> so I, I go up to the desk, and Dave's still back there kind of, panicking about this ingrown hair, I go to the desk and they say, can you come with us? And they're my buddies with the shotguns, the, the military soldiers. Well, it turns out that we had brought these tennis shoes to Uganda, but we had to go through Ethiopia. And well, they kind of thought I was stealing them from Ethiopia. And then I was kind of this export terrorist or something. And they started explaining to me that I didn't have a right to bring these shoes in and out of Ethiopia. And I said, keep them, you know, you can have them. But they didn't want me to keep them. And then that just kind of made things worse. Anyway, long story short, another story for another day. I got out of that situation, and Dave is a nervous wreck. He's like, I thought you were going to be gone, and will you please, please look at this ingrown hair? And so I look at the ingrown hair, and and I have to admit, about this time, I go, Dave, that ingrown hair is about the size of a dime. And he goes, I know. That's why I'm so scared about it. And I said, well, I just got almost held up by soldiers. We'll just look at that later. So we fly. We get to Uganda. We meet the guy that's going to meet us, and his name's John. And our normal driver, his name was Ernest, great guy. He was in Kenya or Nairobi for something, and he left this guy, John. He said, John, you're in great hands with John. John's going to take good care of you. We're in the back of John's car, and Dave is going, I think it's bigger. And I have to admit, it was the size of a penny now. So I took out my smartphone. I took a picture of it. I said, you know what? My wife, she didn't go to medical school, but she's got three kids. So she's kind of a doctor. So let's show this to her. And I'm sure she can tell us what's going on. And so right there, I paid the $3.50 to send a text message back to the U.S. And I said, Ashley, can you look at this? Does this look bad? And so she sends back pretty quickly. He needs to get that checked out. And I said, she doesn't think it's that bad, Dave. Um, (laughs) She thinks it's fine. I I really wouldn't worry about it. But you know what? It's actually gotten bigger, Dave. It's about the size of a nickel. I think we should call it Daryl, you know? I mean, this is like the third compatriot. We're the three amigos. It's Herbie, Dave, and Daryl. And and we got to have this great trip. And so we start talking to John. John knows all, he's just a great English speaker, or so we've been told. And so we said, John, do you know where we're going to our guest house? And he goes, oh, yes, 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 yes. I said, okay. Um, and then I don't think John knew where we were going because we stopped and saw a Ugandan prostitute. Um, we almost got held up. Uh, we got lost three times. And so an hour and a half later, we made it to our guest house. Well, here's the rest of the story. We ended up the next night at some friend's house. 
They were with the CDC. They were Americans. They cooked us lasagna. It was great. We kind of got there, and we said, I hope it's okay. We brought an extra dinner guest. His name is Daryl. Dave showed them Daryl by this point. Daryl's almost the size of a quarter. Um, the man starts laughing. He thinks it's funny we've brought Daryl. The wife leaves, and I didn't know what happened to her. She comes back, and she brought Daryl's high school yearbook, or at least that's what I thought it was, because she had a picture of Daryl in this book. And she says, is this Daryl? And I looked at it, and I looked at Dave's hand. I said, that's Daryl. <laughs> He's never looked better. And uh, we find out that Daryl wasn't an ingrown hair. Daryl was actually the bite of an African jumping spider. Um, and that, you know, that's not that great because apparently if it doesn't go treated within 48 hours, um, it can like start to go up your arm and you can have paralysis. You can lose an arm. Um, Dave is in full-blown panic at this point. And I think I might have failed to mention Dave's a heart patient and it had a bypass and the arteries had come out of his left arm and Daryl was firmly planted on his left hand. And he's thinking, I'm going to die in Uganda, never wanted to go to the Ugandan hospital. And our friend from the CDC says, you're on your way to the Ugandan hospital. And so we, she tells us there's this place called the surgery and that it would be safe and that the U.S. Embassy said it's good. Dave was fine with that, I guess. And so we get in the car. We said, can you tell John where the surgery is? They tell him. I say, John, do you know where we're going? He goes, yes, 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 yes. It's about this time that I start to think, does John know English? <laughs> or does all he know is yes? Uh, so we end up at this place, and it was kind of near the embassy. I've been to Uganda several times. I knew where the embassy was. We're in this place, and, you know, it's kind of like a horseshoe. And John takes us over, and I said, John, is this it? And he goes, yes, 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 yes. John, this is the surgery. He goes, yes, 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 yes. And we walk into a Ugandan hair parlor. <laughs> and I started thinking to myself, surely the surgery that the embassy wants Americans to go to is not in a hair parlor. And I go to the lady, and I said, you know, with the whole perm equipment all in there and the hair blowers from the 1970s, I said, is this, you know what we're here for? And she goes, yeah, I know what you're here for. John told me. I was like, okay, great. And I said, uh, where's the room? And she goes, it's right here. So she takes her key out. She opens this door. Sure enough, there's like a gurney right there and some stuff to the side. And uh, Dave loses all the color in his face. I think he's probably about to throw up or something. And I said, well, you want me to just leave you in here while you have the procedure? And he goes, nope, you're not leaving me. <laughs> and so then something really terrifying happens. She looks at Dave and she says, well, take off all your clothes. <laughs> and I want to say, ma'am, it's right there, left hand. He doesn't need to take off his clothes for that. And she says, are you not here for a massage, Dave? And I said, no, no, we're not here for a massage. It's at that point that we knew John didn't speak English. And so I said, we're, we're looking for this place called the surgery. Long story short, we ended up at a honky-tonk. We didn't get out of the car there. Um, and I'm pretty mad. Dave is pretty upset. And so I call our driver, Ernest. I say, Ernest. John doesn't speak English. We have to get to the surgery. And he goes, Brother Herbie, are you staying at the normal guest house, the Proteria, the one you usually stay out? I said, yes, Ernest, we're staying at the normal guest house. He said, are you there now? I said, no, we're not there. We're looking for the surgery. Where is the surgery? He said, just go back to your guest house. I said, Ernest, you don't understand. There's a black African spider. We've got Daryl. Daryl's almost the size. <laughs> He's big now. Ernest, where is the surgery? And Ernest says, well, leave your guest house, go across the street, and there's the surgery. <laughs> so we go back to our guest house, go across the street, and there's the surgery. And so without anesthesia, long story short, 
they removed Daryl, our friend, um, from Dave. And it was really sad because they took him and they extracted him. Um, but what was even more sad is that they said, don't check him for 48 hours and you don't want to get dirt. And of course, we were going actually that day to, to spend the day with some HIV orphans. And I mean, he had that thing covered really well. And that night we got it up to see the wound and, and the last remains of Daryl. And you'll never believe it, Daryl was back. Uh, and so we had to go back to the surgery. And just to say this, I've never heard another human being scream that loud as they had to extract our friend Daryl. And that was, that was the story of a lot of unfortunate events the day, obviously, our friend Daryl died. But the good news is Dave's still alive, and he's alive and kicking. And, you know, the whole opportunity in this, you know, it was an unfortunate trip, and there are so many other things I didn't tell you about this unfortunate trip, but the silver lining of the whole thing is that we serve a great God, and he gave us a lot of great opportunities to minister to orphans and to see some great things happen with the local church in Uganda and Ethiopia as they wrap around orphans right there in their countries. Thanks. Herbie Newell is the President and Executive Director of Lifeline Children's Services, a holistic orphan care organization headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama, but with offices in 10 different states and work in over 25 countries. You can find him on Twitter at HMNewell and learn more about Lifeline at lifelinechild.org. So full disclosure, Herbie is a friend of mine and Lifeline is actually the agency my wife and I use to facilitate the adoption of our son. We love them. And if you've ever wanted to know more about adoption or foster care, whether here in the States or internationally, I really recommend you check them out. Now, if you love ARC stories, we'd really appreciate it if you'd recommend others to check us out. How about that for a transition? <laughs> Anyway, there's any number of ways that you can do that, but one we would especially like is if you would leave us a review on iTunes. You can do that on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes itself. It helps us to get noticed and for other people to find us, and it's just such a simple way for you to support all of the great storytelling we are cultivating with ARC Stories. So that being said, I want to especially thank Big Papa Pump for your recent review. We're so glad that someone at your church told you about us. See you guys. If you tell someone to listen, it really works. Now, this next travel story is actually one of mine and is directly related to the adoption of our son that Herbie and Lifeline helped us out with. Believe me, though, the tragic elements were definitely not their fault. From a recent event we hosted where our theme was POV, stories about a change in perspective, here's me, storyteller Chris Kinsey. In February of 2013, my wife Liza and I boarded an airplane to fly to Ethiopia in order to bring our son home. And we were super, super anxious about this trip for all kinds of reasons. Just a few of them were that one, it was the culmination of a three and a half year adoption process that had cost us tens of thousands of dollars in many sleepless nights, and we were just ready for it to be done, for us to be a family and for us to be able to move forward. We were also anxious because it had actually been two months since we had seen our son. You see, the way the adoption process works in Ethiopia is you're matched with a child, 
And then after some amount of time, you get to travel to the country, meet the child, go to court, be legally declared their parents, and then you have to leave. The reason you have to leave without the child is because our government has a bunch of stuff that they have to do, and it takes them some amount of time to do that, and then they call and tell you, oh, now you can go get them and bring them back. We've approved you to be their parents. And so we'd been waiting. That, that process had taken two months for us, which was extremely nerve-wracking because our son, when we met him, was very, very sick. We first learned about him when he was two months old. We, reserved, uh, we received a couple of somewhat blurry photographs and a brief sheet of information about him, not knowing much. And then a few months later, when he was four months old, we actually flew to Ethiopia for the first time to meet him, to go to that court, become his parents. And uh, we were so excited about it. And when we landed in that country, we went to the orphanage where we learned that they had named him Bahir. That's what the orphanage director had named him. It's an Arabic name that means sparkling. And when they put him in our arms, wrapped in a blanket, we knew what a perfect name that was because his eyes sparkled with life. But in a lot of ways, that was the only sign of life he was exhibiting. His skin around his head was just pulled so tight, and you could see the veins underneath the skin. When we unwrapped the blanket and took the little onesie that was on him off, we could see his bones, we could see his ribs, we could see the joints, we could see skin just hanging off. He was being very well cared for in this orphanage, but for some reason, he just wasn't eating. He just wasn't receiving the nutrition that he needed. He was four months old. He weighed less than seven pounds. He was wearing newborn clothing, and it was hanging off of him. Even during the time we were there, we sent him to the hospital for them to put an IV in him just to help uh, sustain him a little bit more. So we'd been very worried, just ready to get back to him. So while we were on this plane, instead of trying to focus on is he okay, is everything fine with him, and instead of worrying about that for our entire flight over to Ethiopia, I decided to look around and try and figure out if someone else on this plane was also adopting from Ethiopia. Because on our first trip, we were at the orphanage with another family, and they annoyed the tar out of me. And so I really didn't want to be with anyone again. I just wanted some time for me, my wife, our son, and for everything to be fine, not have to deal with anybody else. So I'm looking around, are there any other young, upper middle class, white couples traveling to Ethiopia for some reason? That's kind of the sign. Um, and I see one such couple that fits uh, that description. And I, I don't know them, obviously, and they're sitting in another part of the plane. I just see that the wife is reading Fifty Shades of Grey. So in my mind, I call her Fifty Shades, and I call him Mr. Grey. And I'm a, I'm a <laughs> voracious reader, but I'm not a snooty reader. But I just kind of figured, oh, they're reading. we're probably not going to get along. We're not going to have a lot in common. I hope they're not going where we're going. We landed in country. We were taken to the orphanage. Fifty Shades and Mr. Grey were not there. I was very pleased and we were brought by here. And he was wrapped in a blanket again, and he was put in our arms, just like the first time. We looked down at him, and then we looked at each other, and we thought, is this the kid? Is this, is this or, or did someone mix something up? Because the skin on his head had filled out. He had big bushy head of hair where you could see those veins before. We unwrapped the blanket and opened up the onesie and where there had been sagging skin and joints and bones showing through, there were now rolls of fat. And we were like, 
what has happened? But looking at his face, there were those same sparkling eyes looking back at us. And we just felt such a burden lifted from us. Like, thank God, he's obviously fine. This is great. We don't have to worry about all that stuff we've been worrying about. We can now just focus on being a family and trying to convince this six-month-old little boy that we're his parents and that he should not be terrified to go away with us for the rest of his life. And so to begin that process, we figured the first thing we'll do is we'll let my wife Liza feed him. Uh, it's something that we had tried to do multiple times on the first trip. We went and, like, I would hold him, and I would put the bottle in his mouth, and he wouldn't suck it. He wouldn't, and I would just squeeze the bottle, like, force milk into it, then pull it out, and then, like, sit there and wait until he swallowed it, and then stick it back in and squeeze some more. It's like, we're going to try this again. So we, we got him, and we made a bottle, and we put it in his mouth, and he just sucked it down like crazy. Like, this kid was eating. And he sucked it down. It was great, like, so quickly. And then my wife put him up on her shoulder, and she began burping him, like patting his back, and she's doing that, and it's making, you know, a beating sound there, and then all of a sudden there's a splat, 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 like the sound changes. We're like, what, what is that? And then, oh, there's a, oh, you, and so we lay him back down, we unwrap him once again, and it was like everything that he had just sucked down had immediately gone through his system and come back out. The color had changed slightly, along with the smell, and it had come out of everything he was wearing, just up his back, out the legs, just all over everything. You're like, oh, oh, that is unpleasant. But it was nothing we were unprepared for. We were already parents with three, almost four-year-olds. We'd experienced this type of thing before, so no big deal. We'll go upstairs. They didn't have bathtubs or anything. They had, like, inflatable kitty swimming pools. We, like, blew one up and stuck it in the shower, and we're, like, cleaning them off and everything and get them dressed and go back down. We'll deal with those clothes later. And two hours later, like, he is losing his mind. He is screaming. He is crying. We're bouncing him. We're trying to put him to sleep. We're trying to figure out anything. We're like, well, maybe he wants to eat again. I mean, it seems like pretty soon, but okay. We make a new bottle. We give it to him again. He latches on, sucks that thing down. Liza puts him up on her shoulder. She's patting him, pat, 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 splat, splat, splat. (laughs) Unwrap him again. It's happened again. Second blanket, soiled. Second set of clothes, soiled. And this continues every two hours, day after day after day. He screams, we make a bottle, we feed him. As soon as he's finished feeding, it's come right out all over everything. We're like, what is going on? And so we're looking at this pile of dirty clothes, and we're thinking, should we just throw this stuff away? But then I feel terrible, like we're at an orphanage in Ethiopia. Like, we can't be seen throwing clothes. Like, how American is that? Let's just throw these clothes away. I was like, the people here will hate, hate us. We cannot let them see that. So we're like, let's just try and wash it. We'll fill it up in the sink, in the inflatable bathtub. We'll try and do that. We've never hand-washed anything in our lives. We've always had a washing machine, but we'll give it a shot. They seem to be doing pretty well out there doing it. Look at them out the window. So we're in there doing that, and I'm like, man, they're going to think we're idiots. Like, we are accomplishing nothing. Like, we're going to be, this is so insulting to them. This is something they do every day. We don't, we're going to have to go ask them for help. Like, what are we going to do? And this is going on and on and on. But it seems to be okay. The nannies come, they help us, they teach us some things, they give us some pointers. 
They even loan us some new clothes because eventually we run out. Everything is ruined and now somewhat hand-washed and hanging up all over our room and anywhere else we can. We even run out of all the diapers we brought with us. And so I need to go out. I need to get more diapers. I need to get more clothes. And so we pack up. We get but here, ready, and we get him, and we go, and, we get, and the driver won't leave with us. He, he won't leave. He refuses to take us. We're like, no, we have to go. Like, <laughs> this is the last diaper. We must go to a store right now. You have to take us. But he, he won't do it. There's a language barrier. We're trying to figure it out. How do we get someone to help us? And the reason why is they don't want us to leave, like, this orphanage compound because they don't want everyone else to see us with Bahir. It can, you know, there's, it can be a bad perception of us with this boy. The Americans, the white Americans coming to take the Ethiopian boy. And so then I'm beginning to worry about that. Like, are we doing the right thing? Like, is there something wrong with what we're doing? Like, everyone... So I leave Lysen, but here, there. I go to the store myself. I get some new diapers. I get some new clothes. I go back. We begin trying to prepare for the trip home. And so what we do is we get all the clothes as clean as we can, as dry as we can. And what we decide to do is in our carry-ons, we will pack one extra shirt for each of us, and we will fill the rest of it with everything else we have for Bahir. Oh, because we're going to be going through some clothing on this trip home. I can, I can just picture it. And so that's what we do. We pack it all up. We go to the airport. We get through uh, checking in. We get through customs and everything. We get to the gate, and we're sitting there, and he's screaming, and we feed him. And the same thing happens again, and we're, so we're cleaning it up. And we're like, well, I mean, we can't hand wash it here. Let's like is anyone looking? We're just going to throw this one away. And we just put that one away, and I'm just losing my mind. Like, what is this going to be like on an airplane? Everyone on this flight is going to hate us because of what we're about to put them through. This is, this is the nightmare. Screaming child, stinky child, messy child, all over the place. And we're about to be those people. So I'm getting up. I'm wandering around the airport. Like, I'm going souvenir shopping just for anything. Yeah, I buy him some toys. I buy my daughter some toys. I buy some random scarves just because they're sitting there by the cash register. And when it's almost time for us to board our plane, we see a couple walk up. And it's Fifty Shades and Mr. Gray. And they, too, are carrying a young Ethiopian child. This one, a little girl. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, they were, and they immediately noticed us, so now we must talk. We must converse with one another because we have shared experience. And so we do that, but I am not interested. Like, I'm so not interested. I know they told us their names. I don't know their names. I, there's still Fifty Shades of Mr. Gray in my head. I'll never know their names. If I need time to board, we go, we get on the airplane, we're sitting in a bulkhead, which is perfect for us, because in the bulkhead they can bring out a bassinet, and they can like stick it in that bulkhead and sit there, and you can put the baby in the bulkhead so the baby can sleep. And so, oh, great, we don't have to hold him the whole time, this is going to be wonderful. So we do that, we get him in the bassinet, we take off, everything's fine, but about an hour into the flight, he's screaming, crying, we're trying to comfort him, nothing's coming, okay, let's make a bottle. So we make a bottle, and we give it to Bahir, and Bahir sucks it down, and this, what happens, happens. And so we go, oh, great. So now we go into the airplane bathroom, which is never great anyway, and we fold down the thing, and we're trying to, and again, it's just, all right, we're just getting rid of this one. And we go back to the seat, and two hours later in the flight, this is a 14-hour flight, by the way, two hours in the flight, <laughs> same thing happens, crying, bottle, everything through, clean up, go, clean up, throw the, happens again, happens again. And I'm like, we got to come up with some new plan. <laughs> this is not working. And so the plan I come up with is that we had brought um, some plastic bags with us to put dirty clothes in. 
and they had become the receptacles for everything dirty. Like, we'll just put it in a plastic bag, we'll tie it up, we'll stick it, you know, we don't have to worry about it. I was like, why don't we, the next time he's hungry, we'll put Bahir in the plastic bag. <laughs> we'll undress him, we'll take everything off except his diaper, we'll put him in the plastic bag, we'll feed him, and then when what happens, happens, we'll pick him up, we'll take everything off, it will fall into the plastic bag, Problem solved. It had to have been sleep deprivation that my wife went along with this plan. But a couple hours later, Bahir's screaming, we make the bottle, we undress him, we put him in the plastic bag, we stick the bottle in his mouth, he sucks it down, as soon as he's done, it all comes back out into the plastic bag. No problem. Then I hold Bahir up, my wife undoes the diaper, it falls into the plastic bag. No problem. Just as we're now about to kind of change him, she's getting some wipes out, she's beginning to wipe him down and everything. He decides he's not finished. <laughs> and he starts going again. And it's not in the plastic bag. It's on, in the bassinet, it's on the blanket, our blanket, the airplane's blanket, the little white pillow that they give you, like it's all over, it's happening, and we're losing, oh, we're trying to catch it and get, the back, get it back in the bag, what are we gonna do? Meanwhile, I hear a commotion coming from the other side of the plane. Across the bulkhead is Fifty Shades and Mr. Gray, and they've got their little girl, and whatever she's eating is all coming out this end, it's coming out her mouth. And Mr. Gray has the little airplane cups, and he's trying to catch it like this trying to get everything. And Fifty Shades and I make eye contact and our eyes are just like, what is happening? <laughs> Finally, Bahir finishes. Their daughter finishes. We get up, we go to the two bathrooms, back in the galley. We clean up our children. We're standing there in the galley while our spouses are trying to take care of the messes our children are made. And Fifty Shades look at me and she says, when will this nightmare end? <laughs> We finally make it to Washington, Dulles, and now, now I'm so thankful to be off the plane, but I'm worried about what, are we gonna get through immigration okay? Like, we've never done this before. We have a bunch of paperwork that we're supposed to give them. Is it all gonna be here? Did we miss something? I hope not, because they're not gonna let them back in. What are we gonna do? But we get through immigration, everything goes fine, and then as we're collecting our baggage to go recheck it, someone meets us there. They're like, your plane is waiting on you. You have to run right now through the airport to make your flights. And I'm worried the flight's gonna lose us. And we're running through the airport. I'm carrying the carry-ons. They're significantly lighter at this point because of how much stuff we've left. My daughter's got Bahir strapped to her chest. We're running through the airport. We make it to the plane. We get on, we fly from Washington to Charlotte. And on that flight, Bahir gets hungry feed him, the same thing happens. We take off his clothes and we put on his last outfit. We just need to get through the Charlotte airport into Birmingham, if we can just make it. So we land in Charlotte, we get into the airport, we go find our gate, we are waiting, just so anxious for our next flight. When we hear a vaguely familiar voice say, Chris, Lizo, what's up? Now, one of the reasons we were so excited to get home was because of all of the family and friends we knew that would be waiting in the airport for us to celebrate with us this wonderful moment. And we had a list of people we couldn't wait to introduce Bahir to. The person that this voice belonged to 
had not made the list. <laughs> His name is Scott, and the best, he's someone we know, but the best way I can describe the relationship is that he's the ex-husband of one of my wife's good friends, okay, if that gives you an idea. And, and Scott is like big guy, big personality, big voice, someone I'm not interested in dealing with at this moment. And he comes up, and he's, hey, he's been following, you know, because we're Facebook friends, so he's following us on Facebook and the whole thing. Oh, this is so great. This is him? Like, of all the people that gets to be the first one to meet our kid, you know, not our parents, not our good friend, like, Scott. <laughs> yeah, this is him, yeah. This is great. So then it's time to get on our plane in Charlotte, and we board the plane. And before we take off, but here screaming, we're like, oh, God. Please, Lord, please. We make a bottle, we feed Bahir, the same thing happens. So even before we've left, I get up, I take him back to the bathroom, I clean him up, we're out of clothes, so I wrap him in one of those scarves that I bought just because it was sitting next to the cash register when we were back in Ethiopia. And I bring him back to our seat and there is grumbling happening, but not so subtle grumbling. Like, oh, that smell, oh, a baby, oh, it's going to be so loud. There's a bunch of business dudes traveling back to Birmingham, and they ain't excited about us being on their plane, and they don't mind making it known. Like, there's a lot of high five, a lot of roll tides, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that type of thing. <laughs> and my head just falls, like, I just, ugh. These people hate us. And then all of a sudden... Scott stands up. And Scott says, hey, everybody! This is Chris and Liza. They are coming back from me. They've been traveling like 24 hours on their way back from Ethiopia with their adopted son. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this exciting? And all of a sudden, everyone starts clapping. They're like, yes, this is great. This is wonderful. Like Everyone just completes the tune. The environment on the plane just completely changes in that moment, all because of Scott. And he didn't just change the way everyone else was seeing our situation. He changed the way I was seeing it, too. Because since I had found out Bahir was okay, I had stopped worrying about him. And I would started worrying about everyone else. I was worried about if another couple was going to be there. I was worried about if the nannies were going to think we were terrible people. I was worried about the people in Ethiopia thinking we were stealing their children. I was worried about the people on the plane. I was worried about the immigration people. I was worried about the people holding our plane. I was worried about Scott being there. I was worried about these stupid world tied business dudes. Like I was worried about everyone else. And Scott changed my perspective because now I realize <laughs> these people don't matter. This isn't about them. I'm missing out on celebrating what is amazing, that this family has come together, and that I need to be concerned for Bahir. That he's, though he's just six months old, he's had no choice, and he's left behind his country, his culture, his tribe, his people. He's been given to people that have been strangers and taken to a new place. And from this point on, he needs me to be concerned for him. So because of that, I'll forever be thankful to Scott for changing my perspective. Thank you. So obviously, I, Chris Kinsley, am the host of this podcast, the director of media for Arc Stories, and the communications director for the church at Brick Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley.
If you enjoyed today's stories, we would love to have you join us for more at our next live event. It's coming up next month on Friday, August 5th at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme will be Lost in Translation, Stories of Misunderstanding. If you have a story that fits that theme that you would like to tell, please let us know. You can do that as well as get other info and your tickets for the event all at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. This podcast is produced by Taylor Robinson and myself. Francisco DeAndrea composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Senia Etheridge, Aaron Moon, Betsy Lee, Jake Brantley, and Casey Sharp for making this episode possible. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Arc Stories, and visit us at our website at arcstories.com. There, you can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with everything we have going on, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story? <laughs>